Many will attribute the passion of Charles Darwin and his work, The Origin of Species, to the discovery, to the discovery of a wasp. It's reported that Darwin, as a scientist, was moved to question the existence of God because of the existence of a particular wasp. Now, this is no ordinary wasp. So collective church, be warned. I'm going to show a photo, and I know some people get weirded out by photos of bugs. Close your eyes, I guess, if it bothers you. But we have that photo of the wasp. So this is it. This is the type of wasp that challenged and confused Charles Darwin. Now, just leave it up for a moment, uh, Grayson, if you will. This particular species with surgical precision injects its very long stinger right into the cat- a caterpillar's nervous system, not killing the caterpillar, only paralyzing it, as to make sure that the caterpillar as meat remains fresh. Why, you ask? Because then the wasp lays its eggs inside of the caterpillar so that when they hatch, they're inside their food source and they eat their way from the inside out. Welcome to Collective Church, everybody. Yeah! Woo! So it's reported that Darwin studied this. This wasp, Darwin studied it and was moved with such emotion and such confusion with the creation of this particular aspect of nature that he actually questioned the goodness of the creator. The wasp only being a small indicator of the problem of evil. That's not all. Other biographies will tell you that it isn't a wasp that confused Charles Darwin, but the passing of his favorite daughter, his favorite 10-year-old daughter, Annie. This later coined by researchers and Darwinian historians as the Annie hypothesis. Sadly, Annie died on Easter, April 1851, and in his biography, simply called Darwin, it's reported that it was this moment, this exact moment on Easter when his daughter died, that Darwin came to the end of his Christian faith. Says this in the biography. There was no straw to clutch. There's no promised resurrection. The Christian faith is futile. So, either one of these uh, experiences or insights, wasps or any, is enough was enough to bruise one's faith in a good God. But if you were to put them together, you seemingly have our verses for today. Put them together and it can grind one's faith into a fine powder, if not understood. And I'm talking about the infamous tension-filled story of Abraham sacrificing his only son, Isaac, in Genesis 22. Hebrews 11 summarizes it this way. Should be on the screen, follow along. This is a summary of all of Genesis 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So that's the author of Hebrews' summary. This is New Atheist and Richard Dawkins' Summary of Genesis 22. By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying and two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, that being I was only obeying orders. Yet, 
The legend is one of the great foundational myths of all three monotheistic religions. One of the great foundational myths of our faith. So as you can see, we just can't skip this portion of Hebrews chapter 11 regarding the sacrifice of Isaac with Abraham. Or why we'd spend 16 weeks encouraging our church to put a faith and put your faith in a grotesque God who commands his followers to murder their own children. Clearly to progress in Hebrews chapter 11, this must be understood. Must be. So then I would invite you for a moment to not, and just bear with me, to not look at the God of the Bible, but I want to invite you to look at the other gods of the ancient Near East the neighboring gods of Abraham and Isaac had demanded their followers to sacrifice children. It's disturbing to think of it, but child sacrifice was a norm of their day. So I have a picture. This is Molech. This is Molech, a god that was a neighboring god to the Hebrew god of the Bible. He famously consumed child after child after child, as you can see. And sadly, we have archaeological digs with pitfalls of of bones of children. Now, the reason any of this existed arose from the unknown belief and fear that these outside forces, that they're either on your side or they aren't. You never knew where you stood. Is Moloch on my side or is he not? Is Moloch with me or is Moloch not with me? So to ensure that these forces were on your side, you take a portion of your harvest or of your livestock and you offer it on an altar as a sign of gratitude, as a sign of, I need something. But if that did not work out and you didn't get pregnant or you didn't get rain, so on and so forth, then it meant that the gods were displeased. And so then guess what? Everything escalated. Meaning sacrifice went from corn to birds to cows to children. To children. Your entire relationship with religion and these pagan rituals and these gods rested on what you and what I could offer them. Everything rested on what you could give them. Now enter Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. Now, one more caveat before we actually begin. First, this portion of scripture is juicy, like jamba, jamba, juicy. Like, it is so juicy. And that is because, if you know the book of Genesis, or you're going to see today, that all of a sudden it slows down unbelievably dramatically. Like, all of a sudden, where everything has been like, if you're turning the pages of Genesis, like every page you were turning, Abraham was like aging by another hundred years. Now, we're going to all get whiplash from the brake pumping. All that to say is there are enough lessons here to satisfy a church sermon list for the next hundred years. It's truthful. So I'm just saying up front that this can't be exhaustive. I'm going to try and pull in as many nuggets as possible, but if I don't get to your favorite nugget, all I say is be cool. Be cool about it. Send Lorenzo an email. I don't care. Send his dad an email. Lorenzo's dad's here? Yeah, and his mom's here? Woo! They're going to hate that I did that. I love it, though. That's for you, Todd. Okay? Okay, so second though, yes, this is more about Isaac today, but clearly we have to talk about the faith of Abraham as well. In fact, if you read Isaac's portion of his life in the book of Genesis, Abraham dominates it. Abraham dominates Isaac's life. Even after Isaac or Abraham's death, it's Abraham this and Abraham that, Abraham this and Abraham that. It happens all the time with his life. And since we are in more of a series in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews 11 gives more real estate to Abraham than anybody else. So we must, we must be sensitive to that. 
But the dynamics between this father and son, Abraham and Isaac, is a tale as old as time. This overpowering, all-encompassing, domineering dad and the child in his shadows. Some of you may have a dad like that. Like, there's no way I'll be as cool as my dad. Me? Super cooler than my dad. My dad is a... Never mind. I'm not going to get into it. (laughs) Papa! I'm not going to get into it. Which makes, though, Isaac possess a timid and yielding disposition. People look at the patriarchs and go, no, no, Isaac, he by nature is far more calculated to obey rather than to make a command. That's how you know what Isaac is like. He's a follower, not a leader. This is Isaac. In a lot of ways, he is the polar opposite of his father and mother who we've studied a bunch the last couple of weeks, okay? So he's quiet, he's meditative, and he's a man most shrinking. And if you ask a Hebrew scholar or a rabbi, why is Isaac like that? When his dad is Abraham, this giant man of faith, why is Isaac like that? Rabbis and Hebrew scholars will tell you this. Trauma. Isaac is a PTSD survivor. And they will say, why does he have trauma? Genesis 22. Genesis 22. So no more wasting time. Verse one. Let's do what the Black Eyed Peas says and get this party started. I oh, somebody was so dis. I've been waiting years to use it. Today was not the day. From from child sacrifice to Fergie, it was just not a good segue. Verse one, text work. We're gonna do a little bit of text work. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, I said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Abe's response is, I stand ready for your command. This is a statement of surrender, okay? Verse two, and he said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. God is pushing buttons. That's what he's doing. The word for son in Hebrew is used 10 times in Genesis 22, over and over and over. It's grinding it into the narrative and into Abe's heart. And look at this, verse two, and go to the land of Moriah. So if you're unfamiliar with scripture, This land has huge significance in the Bible. It is not a single peak, so don't think of it like that. It is an elongated ridge, an elongated ridge. So this is more of a tiny like hike, slow hike up versus like a summit. They're not scaling a mountain. But beyond that, this mountain from this moment with with Isaac and Abraham all the way to when Solomon later on in the Old Testament builds his temple here that lasted about 400 years. This has lots of significance all the way even to the book of Revelation. This is a very important mountain. Verse two. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Okay. It's here. We have to remember that the Bible had not yet been written. Okay, so he didn't know that our God actually hated child sacrifice. You with me? He hated, and as horrifying as it sounds, with all the pagan winds blowing in and out of his life, could it be that Abraham was not shocked in the request? Could it be? That when Abraham heard the sacrifice of his son, he's like, well, this is what God's here do. Isaac, too, knowing that he was the firstborn, would have been familiar with what a firstborn means within culture. The offering of the firstlings or the first fruits or the first child is the offering of one's entire everything. Back then, it was your everything. 
In the Old Testament, it symbolized a debt man owed to God. And throughout the Bible, when you see God laying claim on first fruits, whether that be from agriculture to heritage, it's because God wants or wants us to realize, the Bible wants us to realize that it represents your whole life. This represents your everything. So bear with me. The point wasn't to appease God with the sacrifice or that God needs your children's to be sa- your child to be sacrificed or that God wants your child at all like that. This was more than murder. This was more than murder because if it was just that, Abraham could have just taken him out in the tent. So something much deeper is going on in Genesis 22. A something that either solidifies a follower of Jesus and their faith or it shakes it. The point of Genesis 22 and even Hebrews chapter 11, what it unearths is that every single part of your life and my life is a response to who he is. It is a life offered back without restriction. It's a life offered back without restriction. And because restrictions exist in all of them, all of us, excuse me, whether we're aware of them or not, God does something about it. Look at verse one again. After these things, God, what? Tested. God tested Abraham. I'm just curious, who likes or liked taking tests in school? Is there any of those sickos here? Any of those people? Per Bosco, Bob Smiley? I would, have, I would have bet a million dollars, both of you. You guys remember, like in school, and like Kimberly's like, Mr. White, don't forget about the test on Friday. And you're like, shut up, Kimberly. Can you remember that? <laughs> it was always a Kimberly too. Mr. White. You know what I did? I would find out there was a test then I would ditch. And when the kids came out of class, I'd say, hey, what were the questions about? Go home and study those questions and like go back and make, do my makeup test. I've like aced every test. <laughs> A little help for the youth over here. You're welcome. Something I do not think we as a church community or we as Christians consider enough in this Christian life is the hard truth that God tests our faith. If you are a Christian, God will test your faith. Some of you are in a moment of testing right now. Most often times of testing, though, will be at the extreme poles of suffering and success. This is more often not. It doesn't happen all the time. But I, I want to highlight those two because those are the two times in our life where we are forced more often than not to act in ways we wouldn't act on a daily basis. Make sense? But what's fascinating here is success and suffering is both equally matched in this very moment for Abraham. He has a son who is his trophy and he has his greatest suffering, his son being taken away. And what we need to know is why does God test? Why does God test the very faith we're taking months to understand? Why would God test me? Doesn't God in his sovereignty know where you're all at? There's a school of thought called open theism. There might be open theists here. I don't know. Open theism where you believe or where open theists believe that God of the Bible uh, doesn't know what the future holds. He has no idea until it plays out. Uh, Just so you know, we as collective church do not believe in open theism, but that is a very legitimate school of thought. Okay? But this sure feels like a proof text or the idea of testing for what an open theist would say, no, no, that's what I'm going to use. That makes sense. So why would God test you? And why would God test me? 
well, why do academic courses offer tests? To establish what has been learned. If you've ever seen the testing of gold jewelry, if you've ever seen the testing, it's heated by fire and then it is dripped and dropped into acid. If it loses its color or it droops, it's proven to be less than pure and or not real. So testing is a refinement of sincerity. Testing of our faith is a uh, refinement of sincerity for any of you note takers. But I will say this. I think the notion of testing for some here haunts you. And I think it haunts a lot of you. I want to allow scripture to comfort any anxieties one might have with testing. The New Testament book of James says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, excuse me, meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect. Not partial, not a lightweight version. It's full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. So bear with me. If we line up all the testing we see in scriptures and we see what's going on here, it seems that tests are that which invoke a sting of doubt to your faith. So it's always, it's not just testing some other aspect of of your marriage here or child rearing here, your single life, life here. It is always going to go after the root of that which is connected to God. So it's about meaning trying to question, to invoke disbelief. An event which shouts in our hearts, God, what are you doing? God, why would you do this? Have we asked these type of questions before? Are you asking them today? God, this doesn't make any sense. How is this going to work? Why would you take that away? Why would you give me that? That's silly, that's stupid, that's foolish, God. Maybe we be aware of this. James 1.12 then wraps it up by saying, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. There's a reward to test, which God has promised to those who love him. Let me just say it again for public record. Christians, God here will test your faith. A moment where God will ask or expose a love for something that is greater than a love for himself. Or you could say it this way. God will ask, like he did with Abraham, will you sacrifice as much for me as your pagan neighbors will for their pagan God? God knows exactly what he's doing in Genesis 22. Read verse four. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. The third day. Guess what I'm doing by third day? Getting out of Dodge. Forget that crap. I am running. And he takes three days. What does this show us? That significant faith transcends an initial response and continues forward. It's not an emotional, yeah, I'll do it, oh God, I'll do whatever, and then all of a sudden dwindles off. It's third day progression. Verse five, then Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the what? The boy, I and the boy. God has been calling him your son, your only son whom you love. And Abraham now goes, no, no, that's that's the boy. That's the boy. Could it be, and I'm, I'm asking, it's speculation, but that Abraham is trying to distance himself emotionally from Isaac. But now I encourage you to pay close attention because this is where everything changes for Isaac as possibly his father is adding distance. And what we see in these painstaking details, that it's not God 
who speaks up. It is not Abraham who speaks up, but it is Isaac who breaks the awkward, tension-filled silence. Look at verse seven. And Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. There we go. He said, behold, uh, there's the fire um, and there's the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? He is, he had no idea what was going on. Church, here it is. Look at verse eight. Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. This is the moment. He realizes that every action, Isaac realizes that every action from here on out must be one of warranted certainty. What does this mean for his dad? What does this mean for child sacrifice and culture? What does this mean for his faith? It only gets worse. Look at verse nine. And when we came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took a knife to slaughter his son. This language is so R-rated as to invoke a reader's or an audience's emotions. The author wants us to be hot and bothered over this. Those two, Abraham and Isaac, are not stoic up on the mountain, emotionalists. Neither should we be in reading it. Now, this word bound is only used like this in all of the Bible. It can be found nowhere else. So highlight that in your Bible. Then look at the word knife. It's only used one other time in all of the Bible, this particular word for knife, and it's one of graphic violence in the Bible. And really, don't think of like a kitchen knife. You have to think of a short sword. So this isn't this little dinky, like Heath Ledger Joker knife or whatever. Like this is a massive short sword. But as we as the audience aren't, we, I think, a bit left wondering that if there's straps, it must be because this little child is fighting back, right? This little teeny baby boy, he's kicking and screaming, so Abraham has to wind him up. Yet, the painstaking details don't mention that. So then what we have to know is that Isaac isn't some little nine-year-old boy. Please don't think that Isaac is following his dad with a blinking a teddy bear, sucking his thumb, going up this big old mountain. No, 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 no. From the narrative, we can gather that he can make complete, coherent sentences. He's making logical conclusions and he's carrying heavy wood. Again, Hebrew scholars will guess his age is between the age of 15 and 37. This guy could be pushing 40. Okay? So in this binding, if Isaac was actually fighting back, it's hard to believe then that he couldn't beat up or stop or push down a severely hundred-year-old man, right? I beat up old people at the time. It's easy. You could throw them around. It's easy. And I'm only 34. Joking. Don't beat up old people. Welcome to Collective Church, okay? All this then means, all of this then means Isaac in some insane, otherworldly, outrageous way, accepted the situation by faith. He just accepted it. You see, where Abel's moment of faith was requested, Noah had a request, Abraham had a request, Sarah received, as we saw last week, Isaac's story of faith is about releasing it is about releasing. 
And this collective church out of the 16 might be the hardest faith pill to swallow for some of us here. God wants us to build a boat? I could totally do that. God wants me to move from this city to city, this city? I got you, God. But God, in the despair and in the suffering and the trauma and the foregone plan and the dead dream, you want me to just sit and trust that you're going to work this out? <sighs> A faith that is told to hold still rather than move. That, I think, is very challenging for a community of doers, a community of problem solvers, a community of achievers, a community of go-getters. If you are in LA, it's probably because you're a beast. Like people here, you only survive if you eat the young. Like if you eat other animals, whatever. If not, you ain't gonna make it. You ain't gonna make it. So by this very understanding of stop, Stop. So again, I don't want anybody to think that Isaac is passive and not making a decision. Isaac is actually making a choice to redirect his will to God's or call it obedience at the highest level or call it surrender or call it an exchanging of his desire for God's. But what does a faith look like when essentially we're asked, you're asked to do nothing? Isaac's entire existence is one of releasing control and just accepting the situation. That is his entire existence. Don't believe me? Genesis 20, or excuse me, Genesis 24, he just allows his parents to choose a spouse for him. He's like, oh, you just find a spouse. Now, I know right now, if it came down to you telling your parents to choose you and find you a spouse, or you like getting eaten alive by killer whales in the ocean, you'd be like, where's my bathing suit? Like, hook it up. Nobody here wants their parents finding a spouse for them. And some people are like over and they're like, I don't care anymore. Just bring it, whatever, dad. <laughs> and then Isaac's own commemoration in Hebrews 11 is this. This is Isaac's very own blurb. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Way more information on a lot of these details next week, but Hebrews 11 moment of Isaac is a story where Isaac is an old, old man and he is blind and he is deceived by his younger son, Jacob. He's deceived by him to steal an inheritance from his older, super, super hairy brother, Esau. This is how hairy his older brother is, that to deceive his dad, super mission impossible style, he puts on like a fake body suit of goat hair and then goes into the room and he's like, let me feel your arm because your voice sounds weird. And he starts feeling, he's like, you are Esau. <laughs> this feels just like my son. That's how crazy hairy Esau is. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Jacob must be thinking, I can't believe this is working. <laughs> And Jacob steals the blessing. His two sons, Jacob steals the blessing of a rich, spiritual, and generational inheritance from his older brother. Now get this, Isaac knew what had transpired after the fact and that it was contradiction to the land and to culture. And he could have withdrawn his blessing from Jacob because it was one out of his seat. Isaac could be like, forget this. You lied to me, fake hairy kid. You lied to me. But Isaac didn't. Isaac didn't. He understood that the Lord's will was at work and he allowed his youngest son to have it. Look at, I'm just gonna read this verse from Genesis 27, 32. Look at Isaac's response. He's upset. 
His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He's talking to Esau. He goes, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. And here's the acceptance. Yes, this is very Isaac and he shall be blessed. (sighs) There is no way Isaac would have let that happen if Genesis 22 didn't happen. There's no way. Isaac was angry. Isaac was trembling. Isaac was shocked in his own unplanned whirlwind again. And you know what he's not doing about it? He's not doubting if it's God because there wasn't a peace with it. I want to encourage us, collective church, I'm talking just to us right now, of removing ourselves from this whole, but do you have a peace about it? No, okay? We need to remove this. I want to marry him, but I have a peace about it. I want to give financially, but I have a peace about it. I want to move here. I want to help out here. I want to start here, but I have a peace about it. God, I've been asked a thousand times because I'm a pastor and, 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 and it's, I love it. It's part of my job. But they, they would ask me many questions like, did you have a peace about marrying Emily before you married her? No. Did you have a peace about moving from Prescott, Arizona to Los Angeles? No. Did you have a peace about starting Collective Church with Pastor Lorenzo? No. It is terrifying. It is scary. It is crazy because it is hard to live by faith rather than peacekeeping. So this whole thing of, I don't have a peace about it. No. You think Abraham had a peace about this? You think Isaac had a peace about this? Feels right in my soul to sacrifice my kid. <laughs> I got a serious peace. What? My goodness. I know that even if every, with even my situation might have, even if every past endeavor would have failed, whether that be from moving here to this church plant to even my marriage, Sadly, but I also know that we have a God who is preparing for us something that we can never even possibly envision. You see, what I can be sure of that the Bible lays out is simple. Don't do this, do that. Yeah, the Bible is very clear. What I can't be sure of, the Bible lays out is quite beautiful. It's beautiful. That being that God, hear me, will always, 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 always provide. Always. Truthfully, you want to know what the whole point of this talk is? You want like the elevator pitch? Look at verse 19 of chapter 11 of Hebrews. This is it. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. You know what Abraham thought in his heart? If God makes me kill him, that's God's problem. That is God's problem. And I know for some that might sound a bit sacrilege, but I don't think we think enough about this. That's God's issue. That's God's problem. I'll never forget, when, I was, when we first moved to LA, I was selling toilets to celebrities here in Westwood. It was the worst job I ever had. Tom Hanks, do you like this one? No, I'll show you this one, I guess. That's what I did every day. And I hated it. I was screamed at all day. You know what I did every single day for like the first three or four months of living here? I would go home, I'd get on my knees, I'd grab my wife's shirt, and I would say, please let me quit. Please let me quit. And every time she's like, no, do it. She's, she's a rough woman. She's rough. I'm just joking. She's beautiful. She didn't say that, kind of. Anyway, but here's what happened. Three months in, I was fired. You know what we did? We partied so hard. You want to know why? Because God, that was God's problem. 
because I wasn't going to quit. I was moving forward. And if God had something else that I could possibly not envision, that is his problem. And I mean that reverently. God will work this out. And both Isaac and Abraham thinking, how can any of this be reconciled? Everything we learned last week about Isaac being the son of promise, that's God's problem. And this is what shows Isaac to know that. Look at verse 20, Genesis 22, verse 11. This is why it brings a person to that place of reasoning. This is what brings a person to that. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. From now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. You see, where Darwin's testing of faith, he walked away from God in the belief that God is cruel. Abe's faith, Isaac's faith, was fortified, galvanized, because they saw firsthand, God provides. If you remember, every other religion at that time, all the other pagan religions was about you and about me offering to God and probably some still in this room think that this is how Christianity works or what it's all about. It's about what you can just offer to God. Wrong. If you think that's what Christianity is about, that is wrong. Only with the gospel-dripping, grace-soaked truth of Jesus Christ do we see that Genesis 22 isn't grotesque. It is gorgeous. Gorgeous. Because God dismantles every other faith system, every other neighboring faith system at that time by saying, no, 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 this isn't about what you give to me. This is about what I give to you. God flipped every idea of religion on its head in one moment by providing a ram. And then what's beautiful is centuries later, another one and only son who the father loved would walk up a mountain carrying wood on his back And get this, scholars will tell you that it is the exact same mountain. That is beautiful. The exact same mountain that Isaac went up with one on his back, Jesus Christ walked up with a cross and was crucified. And rather than God stopping Abraham with a knife, God plunges the knife into Christ Jesus' heart. Man, that, that is so beautiful. And crazy enough, The similarities, the parallels between Isaac and Jesus Christ are so bountiful that I can't cover them all. I literally just had to create a screen to show you. If you have, this are 30, I came up with 30 different ways that they are parallel. I wish I could cover them all, but the similarities are so outrageous, so beautiful, so bountiful that we could talk about these for the rest of our life. God saw Abraham's sacrifice and said, I know you love me because you gave me your son collective church, how much more do we look at Christ as the ram and say, now I know that you love me because you gave us your one and your only son whom you love, heavenly father. When this God is your God and when we, he has worshiped and trusted, then all of a sudden faith and unrestricted acceptance is sweet. Is that much sweeter? Collective church, does this God have full authority to tell you what to do with your life? Does this God have full authority to alter your hopes and dreams? Does this God transcend the importance of your sexuality, of your singleness, of your suffering, and of your success? 
Have we come to the point where we have told God that he can have it all like Abraham did with his son on the altar? Will you pray with me?